we're talking a little bit tonight about preparing, and I hope it relates pretty well to uh, getting back into the groove of some things, or maybe getting into the groove for the first time. Um, it's the end of your year, uh, school year, so maybe there's a chance uh, to, to redeem some things or whatever. We'll find out. Um, a couple things, I don't know if you caught it in announcements, but, um, oh, also welcome back for everybody that went on Spring Break Missions. Uh, I just heard such great things for all of you, so thanks for going and representing the ministry in Chattanooga and uh, the Kingdom of God, the church, all these kinds of things. Um, I heard amazing things um, from that. Um, all right, this weekend uh, we are uh, serving at Widow's Harvest from 9 to 12, right? Somebody on the local mission team, 9 to 12. Um, so I think that was announced earlier, but would love for you to come out and serve alongside of us. Um, and, and it's just not too late. I don't know where you are in this room. I don't know where, I know where you are. You're here. Uh, but uh, I don't know where you are in terms of your community uh, with other folks in this place. Um, some of you may just want to come on Tuesday and um, worship with other Christians and, and hear the word of God, and that's great. Um, that's fine. But if you're looking for some more intimacy or, or friendships or whatever, a great way to meet people is to serve alongside of them. So, uh, oh, this is super weird. I just um, heard a, a story this week. I'm, I'm holding my hand like this for a reason now, uh, that when people are super insecure, they touch their neck. And so I was like itching my neck, and I went, am I insecure right now? Um, but note to self, uh, if you're ever talking to somebody and touching your face and your neck all the time, is a good sign that they're thinking you're insecure. Um, in any case, uh, if you are, I know it's like kind of near the end of the school year, but it's not too late to, to um, get to know people, uh, to develop some friendships. We do drop-in Bible studies on Friday. Um, there's, there'll be tons of opportunities in the coming weeks to get involved in other things um, around here and stuff over the summer as well. So I'd love to get to know you if I don't. Um, my name's Jason, by the way. I work here. Okay. Uh, so listen, every, um, every single mess of a relationship that I've been in, <laughs> And I've been in a handful, um, and what I mean by that is romantic relationships. Um, every single mess of one that I've been in is not, or every single one has happened on accident. Every single one. Um, when I say mess, I mean, uh, for my story, uh, I mean like a one-night stand. Or I mean needing, a needing uh, to sort of break up with someone that I didn't even remember trying to date in the first place. Um, which I, I know for sure that that's happening, or happened in this room. Um, there's a good chance, I think there's a good chance most of you are better at romance than I am or have been, uh, but I'm telling you, I never made a mess of things on purpose. I never set out to do it. In fact, every single unhealthy romantic relationship I've been in happened specifically because I didn't make a plan. Every single one can boil down to the fact that I wasn't really prepared. Every single one. And eventually I'd find myself in these moments thinking, how in the heck did I get here? Do you know that question? And it was always the same answer, by the way. It was always I wasn't prepared. I didn't prepare for what to do when I was lonely. I didn't prepare for the times when I wanted to indulge in whatever I desired. I didn't prepare to resist temptation. I didn't have boundaries. I didn't know myself. I didn't listen to friends. I didn't pay attention to wisdom. I did not prepare. This semester on Tuesday nights, we're teaching about wisdom. And um, we've talked about God's wisdom for all sorts of things, for friendships and decision-making and perseverance, wisdom in conflict and wisdom as it applies to honesty, that those who are wise don't just listen, they act. And many of those things are, are, have some hyper-practical, uh, well, wisdom uh, to them. Uh, and, and I encourage you to, to go back and listen to some of them if you haven't on our podcast or something. But, um, but tonight, tonight's going to be a bit higher level in, in sort of encompassing a lot of these things. But, but tonight my prayer is that we'll hear that wisdom is crying out for us to be prepared. To be prepared. 
prepared to resist foolishness and withstand the attacks of the devil so that after we have fought whatever battles come our way, and they will, that we'll be able to stand firm. So let's pray. Father, um, we, we um, are before you right now as uh, people who have um, sinned against you and against others by things we have done and things we have left undone. And we are at the mercy of your forgiveness and trust that your son Jesus is faithful to forgive us all of our sins. As people dependent upon your mercy and needing your grace, we ask that your spirit would teach us tonight, would help to make us wise, that we would hear her voice, we could dine with her, that we would turn from our simple ways, that we would begin to live, that we would be people who have good judgment. We pray that the, the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of each one of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So um, tonight we'll be looking at, at, at two passages of Scripture, primarily one from Proverbs chapter 9, which is just right a center uh, in your Bible, um, and then uh, something from Ephesians chapter 6, uh, which is right near the end uh, of your Bible. Um, we'll start with uh, Proverbs 9, uh, 1 through 6. This closes out this first section of Proverbs. Wisdom has built her house. She has carved its seven columns. She has prepared a great banquet, mixed the wines, and set the table. She has sent her servants to invite everyone to come. She calls out from the heights overlooking the city. Come in with me, she urges the simple. To those who lack judgment, she says, come eat my food. And drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways behind and begin to live. Learn to use good judgment. <coughs> Wisdom is personified all throughout the Proverbs. She's been with God from the beginning and she proceeds from him. And she cries out in the streets. Almost every week we have read a passage from Proverbs chapter 8. Uh, where wisdom is crying aloud in the streets. She's loud and clear, friends. If you don't know what's wise, it's only because you haven't been listening. Yay! Uh, and those of you who are wise, when you hear something like that, you actually respond. And you turn, you listen to wisdom. And those of you, or I should say those of us who are foolish, we harden our hearts at that kind of thing. We block our ears and we keep on whatever path we were already on. But there she is, wisdom, crying out for you. And in this passage, we're told things like she's built a home. There's, there's actually preparation involved just to receive you. She's prepared a banquet of food and wine. She sent servants to invite you. Leave behind your simple ways. Use to, use, uh, learn to use good judgment, she says. Begin to live. Don't you want life and not death? Come, dine with me. Don't you want life? Then turn from your ways and listen to me. Listen to wisdom. She's crying out. All throughout the Proverbs, she's crying out. But something else is crying out too. And that is foolishness. She's actually called Lady Foolishness. Or Lady Folly, depending on your translations. 
And just as wisdom is obvious, so too is foolishness. So listen to this from uh, a little bit further down in Proverbs chapter 9, the same chapter. Um, verse, chapter 9, verses 13 through 18. The woman named Folly is brash, which just means loud. But because the translators know that, that the, the, the bent of this, this section on Lady Folly, uh, which sounds so weird to say over and over again, um, uh, there's a negative twist here. So they're trying to distinguish her from Lady Wisdom, uh, which apparently doesn't sound any cooler. But um, uh, anyway, the woman named Folly is brash or loud. She's ignorant and doesn't know it. She doesn't know anything. Uh, some passages say, or some translations say. She sits in her doorway or on the heights overlooking the city. She calls out to men or men and women going by who are minding their own business. Come in with me. This, this verse, by the way, verse 16, is exactly the same as verse 4 from Lady Wisdom. Come in with me, she urges the simple. To those who lack good judgment, she says, stolen water is refreshing. Food eaten in secret tastes the best. But little do they know that the dead are there. Her guests are in the depths of the grave. The grave. That, that's the conclusion. That, those words, the grave, is the conclusion of the first major section of the book of Proverbs. So from chapters 1 through 9, it's actually one sort of sweeping section, uh, likely a parent, a father's, it's probably a father's instruction to his son. And it concludes here in this sort of, uh, this summary of sorts, all of this stuff which has been said about wisdom in the preceding chapters, all of these things about money and work and time and romance and, and honesty and, and, and what we do with our mouths, all of these things are kind of gathered here in two huge images. The image of wisdom and the image of foolishness. They're both loud, they both cry from the heights, they both call out in the streets, they both appeal to the same people. To the simple, which, if you are honest, is good news. They both make offers to those who lack judgment, which means most of us. But where listening to wisdom brings life, listening to foolishness brings death. This is how this first section of Proverbs ends. And what stands out to me here is that foolishness, it, for our purposes in this community, it, is that foolishness is calling out to people who are minding their own business. Foolishness is not pictured in the Bible as something uh, that people need to seek out. It's not hidden in some corner or hard to find. Actually, when people um, do something foolish, they often never need an explanation. We all know why every time. It's the natural road for anyone minding their own business and not chasing after wisdom. This is how, foolish, this is how people end up at, foolish, at, the, at the foolish table. Or, or if, you, if you trace foolishness to its end, it's death, it's the grave. How do people end there? By minding their own business and not turning from that. It's the natural way, place that they end up. If you are not dining at wisdom's table, you will dine with foolishness. And though you may not know it, it leads to death. Let me give you an example of, because I think this is a big claim um, for, um, for most of us. Most of us operate like there aren't really just two options. We operate like there's this like, kind of middle ground where I can just mind my own business, and it's neither life nor death. It's just me and my life, and it's going to be great. And so the things I do don't affect anybody if I don't want them to. And I don't have to listen to sort of, sort of prudence and, and, and uh, transcendent moral laws that seem to, to, to find their way into every single culture or uh, notions of wisdom as it applies to responsibility or time management or, any, or emotional health or anything like that. We, we think that there's this other way and it's called whatever I want to do. 
But I want you to listen to this, because this is a crazy example, but I think it illustrates the fact that there isn't really this middle thing, okay? So, <clears throat> I want, do you know how much money $5 million is? It's, the answer is a lot, right? It's a lot. Okay, so if you made $50,000 per year, and you did not spend a dime of it, how many years would it take for you to have $5 million? Anybody know? I gave you a round number. Come on. How many years would it take for you, if you made $50,000 a year and didn't spend a dime, to have $5 million? You guys are college students. Somebody in here is A hundred years. A hundred. Good job. I hope you're doing great. Just so you guys know, not to shame you, I do think my son who's nine could do that. Uh, um, most of you are not math majors. Uh, I don't know why, but in any case. Uh, okay, some of you ought to be in light of the current social experiment we just did. Some of you ought to be math majors. I guarantee you there's jobs. Uh, okay, so... Um, $50,000 per year, you don't spend a dime, it'll take you 100 years to make $5 million. I'm trying to give you just an idea of how much money $5 million is, right? That's a lot of money, right? That's a lot of money. Do you know how easy it is to spend that much money in a single year if you don't make a plan? Very easy, apparently. A couple of years ago, a report came out that Marshawn Lynch, at the time a running back for the Seattle Seahawks, rest in peace, um, uh, <laughs> Had Marshawn Lynch had saved virtually all of the money that he made from his NFL contracts. Okay? All of it. He was a Super Bowl winning running back, driving around, I kid you not, a 1986 Honda Civic, and driving uh, for Uber during the offseason in what we can only imagine was another car. I don't know. Okay? Um, he later reported that it, it wasn't entirely true, that he did spend some of that money, but mostly he just spent what he earned on endorsements, which is about $5 million a year. Okay? So this guy had, by the way, he had about $50 million in contracts, okay, which would take a lot more than 100 years. Uh, who knows what number that is, um, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to ask a nine-year-old somewhere. Uh, but, uh, but so he said, I did spend some of that money. I'm human, y'all. That's what he said. I'm human. And, um, and so I, I spent some of that. You know, he said, but I made some good decisions. And he said he mostly just spent his endorsement money, which was about $5 million a year. Okay, so he saved most of it, but he spent over $5 million a year. That might seem like a crazy, I think it ought to seem like a crazy amount of money to most of us. But get this, all of his teammates started asking him for advice about retirement. All of them. Because if you don't want to spend more than $5 million per year, it turns out, you actually need to do some work. In other words, without planning and preparation... You don't save money, even if you are making $5 million per year. If you think, you know what, I will start tithing or I will start saving when I make a little bit more money, that actually does not hardly ever play out. It's a whole other sermon to talk about Jesus' parable where he says those who are faithful to little are given much. That's, a, that's kind of a different sermon, but you see the principle still applies here. Almost everybody I know, I mean, with very few exceptions, most people I know spend exactly what they make. The people, are, I know families that, that feel internally, they feel just as broke making six figures as they did when they made $40,000 a year combined. And, they, and they, go, they say the same thing. They go, how did that happen? How did that happen? How did that happen? And you can tell them, do you know that you actually make twice as much or more than you used to make that you could have actually lived at your old income level and saved $60,000 a year? And they're like, ah, that sounds crazy. 
I don't know, you know, how do you do that? And so these, these men, these men who are making millions of dollars per year are going up to one of their teammates in the locker room and saying, I don't know how you only spend $5 million a year, but will you please help me make a plan? The testament of, of so many celebrities plays out over and over and over again of being like making millions and going broke. You've got to know, right? I mean, that's an extreme example. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to think of something in our culture that sounds crazy for us. Like, how, can't you just, if you make a certain amount of money, can't you just like eat out when you want to eat out? Go on the vacations you want to go on vacations with? I mean, this guy made the average sort of household income for 100 years and he spends it in one year. Right? Can't he just, like, do his thing? Like, buy whatever car. He doesn't need to buy a Bugatti, but he can buy, like, a nice Audi. Right? And he's still going to have tons of money. He can buy, like, any house in Chattanooga and be fine. Like, you know, like, that kind of stuff. But it turns out that if you don't make a plan, it's pretty easy to blow through $5 million in a year. Or way more, because that was crazy that he only spent that much. Here's how the Apostle Paul states it, this kind of dynamic. In his letter to the Ephesians, this is, again, near the end of your Bible, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. We read a larger section here. Um, put, all of God's arm, put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. Let's just leave that one up if you would, Keely. That would be great. Do you know what the strategies of the devil are? They usually aren't obvious, friends. Some of you, some of you right now are like, thank God we're finally talking about the devil. And some of you are like, we don't talk about the devil. Uh, but we're going to talk about the devil. So, um, okay. So anyway, um, do you know what the strategies of the devil are? They usually aren't that obvious. In other translations, they're actually called schemes, which implies something kind of devious, right? I mean, we think it's a subterfuge or something like this. Um, when the devil tempted Jesus, do you know what he did? What did the devil do when he tempted Jesus? Anybody know? What did he use? He, he used the Bible. <laughs> he, actually, he, used, he started quoting scripture at Jesus to try to tempt him, to do something that he, that he uh, wouldn't do if he were wise. Seriously, and, and he kept asking the questions that started like this. If, if, I contend with you that, that one of the most common ways that Satan begins his sentences is with the word if. If you really are the Son of God, if you really are the Son of God, okay, if you're really the Son of God, this is what Satan does. You know that's one of his favorite schemes, calling into question things which God has promised you. It might sound something like this for you. If God really loves you, I mean, if he really cares about you, do you know that voice? That's one of his strategies. One commentator says of this passage, evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. Man, I see this a lot romantically. It gains entrance by appearing attractive, desirable, and perfectly legitimate. It's a baited and camouflaged trap. A hero of mine, uh, C.S. Lewis, said it this way. He said, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. That's how someone spends five million dollars a year gradually gently without notice or milestones or signpost it's so cliche how much we hear i don't know how i spent that much money or i don't know where all the time went or how in the heck did i get into this mess gradually softly probably 
without many milestones, without many signposts. The schemes of the devil are like this, friends. They're subtle, attractive, deceptive, easy, often looking like, and the Proverbs get into this. I don't, we don't have time to get into this too much tonight. But in Proverbs 9, the, the, the two things that are hinted at most are easy money and cheap intimacy. You want to know practically what the schemes of the devil look like in your life? It's probably, if you're like most humans, it's probably through cheap intimacy or probably through easy money. And the only way to resist these schemes, the only way to resist this stuff, is to st- the only way to stand firm is to put on the armor of God. Now look, we've been doing this, we've been putting, or we've been putting on armor anyway, since the moment we felt shame in our lives. The human race has been doing this since the moment shame entered into the picture. We cover ourselves, right, to try and make ourselves safe or to try and, and, and project an image of ourselves to somebody else, to others, to the world. Every one of us is so good at this. So right now, um, the clothing we wear, the body language we carry ourselves around with, the kinds of phones in our hands, the types of journals or pens that we use, the purses we carry, the hats we wear, the way that we speak, the words we choose to use when we speak. We put on, so to speak, all sorts of things to try and keep ourselves safe or to try to tell the world who we are. And so we put on anxiety thinking that if we could just worry and consider enough what-ifs, we might be able to protect ourselves. Maybe. We put on cynicism thinking that if we just don't take anything head-on and we're able to sort of like this to everything, whoop, almost, man, that almost got me. Nope, I'm a cynic. That maybe we won't be fooled by people that, that potentially could betray us or hurt us. We put on humor, many of us, to keep people actually at a distance a safe distance. We put on an aura of having it all together. We wear it like armor, hoping that no one sees the mess inside of our hearts and minds. Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat are giant social experiments of putting on a curated, filtered image of ourselves. And it's, as, it's just as much for us as it is for the rest of the world seeing us. Escapism, in some form or fashion, is like a giant comforter, I think, that we put over ourselves. It's, it's the kind of armor, I think, that like, binge-watching a Netflix show is. It's like a giant comforter that I'm putting over myself to hide from the world, to find some thin identity in some show that I watch, or to, or to create some buffer for just a moment between me and the, the, the things of this world that I don't know how to respond to. And so we binge-watch, we binge-read, we binge-eat to try and find some safety or some identity. Putting on the armor of God is taking our, these desires that we have for safety and for identity, our desires for comfort and purpose. And instead of going to Netflix or good grades or an Instagram post or pornography, we lean into the truths that God has secured for us and proclaimed in Jesus Christ. Namely, namely, that we are known and loved by God. That we lean in on that as Christians. We lean in on that and practice trusting in those truths. Let me give you another example of of what this might look like in another kind of way. So I have a friend named Kent, and Kent's in pretty good shape. Uh, He graduated from here a number of years back. Smart dude. Um, He wasn't always in shape. Uh, He's a total nerd. Um, And so he he saw no reason to work out for for a long time uh, because he wrote papers a lot. And, uh, and a couple years back, I hadn't seen him in a few months, and I gave him this big hug, and he was solid. You know, like, I'm hugging him, and I start, like, 
feel, it was really creepy. Um, and I started, that was his, it was weird, right? And I, and I kind of went back and said, dude, you've been working out, man. You are solid. And he said, yeah, kid you not. This is what he said. He said, yeah, I realized um, that if I was ever being chased by someone, I couldn't get away. Um, <laughs> dead serious. And then he tried to recover a little bit. And he said, but like, also like, if I was like dating a girl and somebody like stole her purse, like I literally couldn't catch the guy who did it, which is sexist, because it could totally be a woman that stole a purse too, okay? But, but still, his point was, I couldn't catch him, right? And so that's actually the reason why he started working out, and I thought, dude, that's one of the best reasons I've ever heard for anybody working out, okay? Uh, it's truly, and to me, it's a perfect example. So Kent's like, literally, he's like, you know what? I don't think I can run away. I'm going to work out. And, and in a few months, he got solid, and, was, and mostly what he did, of course, is run, uh, but he also did some weights and stuff too, right? It's a perfect example of what I'm talking about tonight. Listen, if Ken ever needed to run away from somebody, and then he thought, okay, let's assume he hadn't been working out, he hadn't been in shape, he couldn't run away from a Twinkie, okay? If that's the life that he was in at that moment, and, and then, he, then this moment came upon him, this moment where all of a sudden the cards were shown and revealed and the truth was coming out, and he thought to himself, for the past few years I have not cared, but now I really want to run like the wind, for a long time without getting tired. Even if he wanted it so bad, like he wanted it with all his heart, he was passionate about it, he thought about it, he just meditated on it for a split nanosecond because he's going to have to take off, okay? If he had not prepared, he couldn't have done it. He couldn't have done it. Ken didn't, Ken didn't thank God he didn't find himself in a, in a place where he needed to run away from somebody and couldn't. He thought, if that happens one day, I won't be ready if I don't prepare now. Ken's going to get a kick when I tell him I told this story in a sermon. Uh, that the only way Kent was going to be able to outrun anybody is if he had been preparing before he needed to do it. Are you with me on that? In our passage, it's ridiculous in this passage. It's ridiculous to imagine, metaphorically here, that in the middle of battle, you'll have time to put on armor. The only way armor is even good is if you enter battle with it. That actually is, a, there's a scene that actually comes up in the, in the Black Panther movie, which you should have seen multiple times by now, uh, where um, the, the main character is actually made fun of because his armor's outdated because he has to go find and put on a mask. And so a, a kind of armor was made that it was already there. It's so obvious. It's common sense. You don't put on armor in the middle of a fight, right? You either have it or you don't when that fight starts. That's it. You don't say, excuse me, time out, just for a second, I need to go get my armor. The devil, we're told, is prowling around like a lion, stealing and killing and destroying and accusing. He crouches in doorways, and you can hear him if you begin to pay attention. Does God really love you? Does anyone? I bet you they're not responding to you because they don't like you. I bet you that's why. This is never going to change, you know. You know, there's probably nothing you could do about it. I know what his voice sounds like. These kinds of schemes are going to come, friends. And if you have not put on armor beforehand, you won't be able to stand. If you haven't planted in the fall, to use a metaphor from an earlier sermon this semester, if you haven't planted in the fall, you can't harvest in the spring. 
We are to be, the Christians are called to be. Wisdom is crying out that we would be. Paul, to the letter to his church in, in Ephesus, is crying out for this. Jesus calls out for this over and over again. We are to be people who, who practice, who prepare for times of loneliness, who prepare for times of fear, who prepare for feeling unworthy, who prepare for feeling insecure because we look soberly at life. Okay, so one of, one of my favorite sort of examples to tease this out, this, um, this comes up all the time, y'all. Like, if you are ever reading um, the, the scriptures and you start noticing uh, a certain kind of challenge or encouragement, it's important. This is just common sense. As I say it, you're going to go, well, no, duh, but uh, nobody says no, duh, anymore. But you'll say something equivalent to that. Um, uh, it's so obvious, but I, I think I need to say it in order for it to be obvious in a way. When Paul says something like, some of you may be familiar with this. Um, Paul is an uh, early Christian, by the way, if you don't know him. Um, he, he at one point said something like, um, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why would Paul have to say something like that unless some people felt ashamed of the gospel? Do you see that? When, when we're told to take courage in a moment, then the reason why we're told to take courage is because it's tempting for us or likely that we might not have courage. That we might cower in fear instead of go through and push through our fear anyway. We are, we are people who are, who, who are st- to look in the face of, of, of the realities of life around us and go, you know what, I, I bet you, I bet you that there's going to come moments soon when I'm going to feel pretty insecure. I'm gonna, there's going to be moments because I'm hungry, I have to go to the bathroom really bad, someone didn't wave back to me on the street, or someone waved at me and I waved to them, but they're waving at the person behind me, or, or something else, you know, somebody I liked started dating one of my best friends, or any of those kinds of moments. Somebody in my life dies that I love. This is a, this Christians are people who are called to look soberly at life. You do know that everybody's going to die, Right? And if you think we'll stop talking about something that's so real and that we're all going to have to go through, God would rouse our attention and say, look at it and prepare. It's one of the reasons, I'm, I'm tipping my hand here, but it's one of the reasons why I like thinking I've only got five weeks left in this school year because for God's sake and for hours, I want to pay attention. I don't want to hit four weeks and six days and then go, well, now what do I do? By hiding under a comforter somewhere. How do I prepare? Christians are called to be people who put on armor ahead of time before the battle arises. In order that when we really need to stand firm, we're able to. So when the battle comes tonight, or tomorrow, in your late 20s, in your 60s, you're prepared. To outrun who you need to outrun. To save what you need to save. If you're making five million a year, come talk to me. Uh, to resist what you need to resist. In order for you to have a flourishing life, to have abundant life, to have a free life, as much as God would allow, you will need to resist some things. To speak truth to lies. To speak grace to sin. If you do not put on the armor of God, you will not be able to withstand the schemes of the devil, friends. If you do not prepare ahead of time, it'll be too late in the moment. 
One of the ways Christians have worn the armor of God, and by the way, all semester as we've talked about each of these different topics about wisdom in the Bible, these are ways in which we lean into uh, the wisdom of God. So, some of us, this isn't in my notes, I've got to be careful not to go on too long about this, but <clears throat> some of us will, will use phrases like trusting God or faith in God as these, as these kind of like poetic I don't know, like ideals, that it's like an internal feeling of warmth toward divine things. Or so, I don't know, something like this. That's not at all what faith in God or trust in God means. When Jesus says, for example, to outdo others in honor, what would it mean to trust God with that? This isn't a math question now. Some of you, come on. What would it mean if, if Jesus, if Paul says, through, uh, Paul, Jesus through Paul says, um, outdo others in honor and do not repay evil for evil, what does it mean to trust God and have faith in God? Yeah, out, outdo others in honor and don't repay evil for evil. That's what it means. So when I'm in a room and I'm feeling like I really wish that people would notice me and honor me, trusting God would mean that I go, okay, Lord, whew, I'm going to give somebody else the honor that I wish I had. And I'm not going to tell anybody about it. I'm going to do that. that I'm gonna, somebody's going somebody's gonna to cut me off on the freeway and I'm not going to ride the bumper. Seriously. I mean, that's, that's so minor. If I can't do that, friends, if I can't do that, then what am I going to do in, in, with a really good friend or a family member or my, or my wife when I'm hurt by them? If somebody just cuts me off on the road and I've got to take out my vengeance upon them in some way, what am I going to do when it really matters? Trusting God is not some like ethereal concept of warmth. It's, it's when, you, when you hear a sermon from the book of Proverbs about friendship and what friendship is supposed to be, look like in, in, in God's kingdom. Constancy and intimacy and loyalty, these kinds of things. Trusting God means that you become somebody who's constant and loyal and vulnerable. That's what it means. And you do it and it will feel, if you are doing it, it will feel uh, at least like risk and on your really dramatic days it'll feel like death on your really dramatic days. Outdoing somebody in honor, I mean, y'all, for all of us, when we're really honest, it just feels like I might as well die some days because I want the very thing I'm giving to somebody else and it feels like I don't matter there and God says, this is what it means to trust me is to place your worth, your value, your safety, your identity on me because I can handle you. And more than that, I love you. This is what it means to trust God. And one of the ways in which we have practiced putting on armor, trusting God, one of the ways we've leaned into these promises and truths is by actually applying the wisdom that God gives us throughout our lives. But one of the, tonight, we, we do this quite a bit, but, but one of the reasons, or one of the ways Christians have practiced putting on the armor of God throughout history is to regularly remember what God did for us on the night he was betrayed. By, by a friend, no less. By a friend he'd spent years with. He was sitting, if you know the whole story from John chapter 13, I mean, Jesus goes to this dinner and he, he, he's sitting at the head of the table, which is a position of authority, and he gets up and he strips off all of his clothes and he wraps himself in a towel and he gets down on his knees and he starts washing all of his disciples' feet, which is incredibly weird and awkward. That might be the kind of thing a servant would do, maybe, but, but, but even then, it probably is the thing you would do. But this is your master. This is your teacher. This is the, somebody that you're looking up to. Um, and they, they, many of them are, are tentatively probably believing or at least professing in some way that he might be the son of God. God of very God. 
And here he is on his knees. And so it's understandable if you read John chapter 13 when Peter, one of his closest friends, says, no, I will not let you wash my feet. That's ridiculous. And then Jesus says, I must, Peter. You don't even know what you're asking. And he goes, well, fine. If you're going to wash my feet, wash all of me because he's dramatic. Uh, and some of us are like that. Uh, like, I think it's some weird self-defense thing for Peter. I don't really know. But, but th- he shouldn't be the point. The point is, is our Lord on his knees washing feet. And if you ever had your feet washed, it's more humbling than even washing somebody else's feet. It's crazy. We should do that sometime. Do that in your core groups or something. It's a fantastic practice. Truly. He washes their feet and he gets up and, and sitting at the dinner table that night, he takes, the co- he takes bread sitting at the table and after giving thanks for that bread, he broke it. He broke the bread and he said, take this and eat this, all of you. This is my body broken for you. This is my body given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, in the same way, he took the cup of, of table wine. This is grape juice because uh, many of you are not 21. Uh, some of you might be alcoholics, so we use grape juice. Um, and... Uh, so I wasn't trying to make a joke. I was trying to be compassionate, but okay. Um, and that's a weird way to do this. Um, and anyway, uh, Jesus took this cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant poured out for you, uh, and my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you get to gather together in remembrance of me. And for 2,000 years all over the world, probably every day, Christians have gathered together to remember what Christ has done for them, what he is doing and what he will do, and they look forward to that day that he will come again. This is one of the ways that Christians throughout history have put on the armor of God, is to lean into this again. Friends, I tell you, every single week when I go um, gather, when I go to church with my wife and my kids, and, um, and there's this uh, church in town with, with a community of people that I'm following Jesus with, with my family. And when we go every single week, there are things I need to remember because there are truths that I have taken off and I've put on other ones instead. Every single week at my church, one of the liturgy, one of the practices that we do is we, um, we confess our sins publicly and then we actually turn to each other and we say peace. And it's incredibly uncomfortable if you've never done it. It's incredible. If you've never like walked up to somebody and just said peace and they've said peace back to you, it's like, dude, this is super weird. Don't look at me when you do it, at least. Uh, but if you've grown up doing that your whole life, you may just, you may forget the significance of it. This last week, on Saturday night, I actually did not want to go to church on Sunday. And you know why? I didn't want to say peace to my wife because I was pissed at her. Truly, some of you were like, I can't believe you guys grow up, okay? Uh, I'm a sinner too, all right? And she's amazing, but I, 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 I sin against her, and I sin against God all the time. And I didn't want to go, and I thought, I don't want to go to church because I don't want to look at her and say peace, and it's going to be really awkward if I'm sitting there and everybody's saying peace to each other, and I'm like, what's up? Uh, <laughs> like, that's, that's going to be really weird. And so, but so, so I got up in the morning. I didn't even want to think about it. I was like, just go, go. And then she said, because we were doing this, like, shower at our house for, like, somebody getting married, and she's like, I don't even know if I have time to go to church today. And I was like, God, dang it, I just, I need to say peace to you, you know? Like, and I didn't say that because I'm a super nerd, and, but I'm thinking that kind of stuff. And she came to church right before that time, like, right before that time. She didn't even know this. She probably only listened to this podcast, though, so it's okay. Um, but right before that time, and I was like, peace. And, I, and, I, and she looked at me like she knew. Uh, and, I, and I had to mean it. And I loved it. And in that moment, in that moment, you know what I'm doing? I'm putting on the armor of God. In that moment, I'm saying, okay, I'm going to trust 
that the peace that God has in Christ Jesus is greater than the offenses that I'm holding on to right now, and I need to trust that he is good, whatever this may look like, and that he can lead us forward in some kind of reconciliation. And to be honest, it, whatever was the problem is so petty, I don't even remember what it was right now. I legit don't remember what it was. I can probably figure it out, but I don't know right now. And Saturday night I was thinking, I don't want to go to church because I'm so mad. Do you guys understand that? I needed to go say peace to her, and I need to come to this table to remember that what is said about you and me is, is proclaimed here in a way that I don't proclaim very well on my social media stuff, in the way that when I'm walking through hallways and I'm just in my introverted self, not wanting to talk to anybody, like this has been a real work for me. I've been trying to like be excited to see people because I have irritable problems. I'm like confessing all sorts of sins today. Wow. Uh, this is really uh, refreshing. Um, uh, in any case, I need to remember truths and lean into this. That when you're invited up here in just a moment to take a piece of bread and dip it in that cup and eat it, it's to remember that Christ's body and blood speak a better word for you than anything else in all of the universe. That what's proclaimed there, that God is for you, that his body is for you, that his life is for you. And that you are always invited to his table. Always. That you need to hear that, and I need to hear that. This is one of the ways that we put on armor. I know that many of you are coming back for spring break, and I don't know what that looked like for you. For those of you that were wise, I pray that this is encouraging, and that you would know that your God and your King has gone before you in fighting the good fight. That he has, res out, he has resisted more than you and I have ever resisted, and he knows what that's like. that he has dined with wisdom, and that he has used good judgment, and that he knows. He knows the battles that you fight. For those of you that have, uh, have entertained foolishness over spring break, for those of you coming back with regrets or with embarrassing moments or, or things you just wish you could undo, always, like, like the word of wisdom goes out to the simple. The word of wisdom goes out to those who don't have good judgment. So if you've lacked good judgment, wisdom, who is personified throughout the Bible, this is so fascinating that Jesus does this, is personified throughout the Bible as a woman, and then when he shows up on the scene, we find out it's him. Don't you know that everything masculine and feminine comes from God? Everything. And wisdom himself invites you to the table. And he says, if, you la if you've lacked good judgment, come and eat with me. I want you to turn from your ways and I want you to begin to live and I want you to use good judgment. This is what this invitation is. So in just a moment, I want to invite you guys to, to sort of come in the middle and come on up, rip off a piece.